0: After going through the world of both Kingdom Hearts One and Two, you would think we continue on this mini series by talking about Kingdom Hearts Three. However, as I mentioned before in the last episode, we have one or two games to talk about first. Sometime after Kingdom Hearts Two, Square Enix revealed multiple games that would be released within the years 2009 and 2011. First, there was Kingdom Hearts Three Five Eight Days Over Two on the DS, easily the worst game in the series. But I rather not go into full detail because I'll get a fucking migraine just by talking about it. Kingdom Hearts Birth By Sleep for the PSP, which is what I'll be discussing in today's episode, and Kingdom Hearts Recoded, a very unfavorable game within the franchise. Again, don't want to go into full detail. Birth By Sleep was the game I was interested in the most because it serves as a prequel to the first game, so how can I not be intrigued by a game that chronologically took place before Sora's first journey? It was a good thing I had the PSP at the time because I wanted to play those shitty Sonic Rivals games. The less said about those games, the better. But considering there was a Kingdom Hearts game coming out for the PSP, I was definitely glad to have it. One of the most interesting aspects from this game is that we had the chance to play up to three different characters. Those being Terra, Ventus, or Ven for short, and Aqua, and each of them having their own stories which made the worlds visit more different because we're getting to explore them from three different perspectives. Like before, I'll be judging these worlds based on their quality and how impactful they are to the game overall. As usual, I'm discussing the worlds that are accessible. The following worlds that won't be mentioned are Dive to the Heart, Destiny Islands, The Realm of Darkness, and The Hundred Acre Wood, which is actually part of the command board minigame, so it doesn't count. Ironically, Destiny Islands is on the world map, but it's inaccessible. What the fuck, Square? I'm aware that The Realm of Darkness is playable in the secret episode. However, only Aqua visits it, so it won't be fair to include a world that only one playable character has access to. That leaves the world count to 12, just like the first game. Also, story spoilers will be mentioned, so I apologize. I'm Eric from Geeks Crossing, and this is the Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep worlds ranked from worst to best. Number 12, The Land of Departure. Shockingly enough, my least favorite world in this game is an original world. The Land of Departure is the home world to Terra, Fentas, and Aqua, and also serves as a tutorial world. This world pretty much introduces us to the trio and gets us in in what to expect. Why is this world at the very bottom? Simple. There's nothing to do! Seriously! The only big combat we get is the training from the beginning and attacking those corrupted light balls at the start of each story. When you return to this world from the world map, there's literally nothing to do. There's no enemies to fight, no additional treasures to find, and you don't even get to explore the castle, which is the biggest disappointment to me. It's a shame because a lot of intense moments happen in this world too, like Terra's boss fight against Master Erikkis, Zanark destroying the castle, or Aqua transforming this world in the Castle Oblivion but none of that is enough to excuse how fucking empty this world is. The only legit reason to go back to this world is to fight the Mysterious Figure secret boss. However, the requirements to access this boss is not worth it. I hate to put an original world this low, but I'm being real with you guys. Number 11, Mysterious Tower. I wasn't expecting Mysterious Tower to be a playable world in this game. Really, it's only relevant for like one cutscene in each story, and it's pretty much each member of the Wayfinder trio meeting Yen Sid for the first time. Do you guys remember how expansive the tower was back in Cage 2 Well, Square decided to make it even smaller than before. All those staircases you had to climb to reach Jensit's room are gone, which is disappointing because I loved fighting enemies while you climbed those damn stairs. Mind you, that mysterious tower serves as its own world this time and not part of Twilight Town, which makes it frustrating even more. The reason I put it above Land Departure is for one reason only. At least there's enemies you can fight in this world, albeit outside the tower, but it still counts. Sally, I can't say any more positive things about this world. Number 10, Deep Space. Lilo and Stitch is one of those universally loved films, and I was completely down for a world based off it, even if it was just covering the first 10 minutes of the film. Before I talk about why this world is in the bomb 3, I'll explain why I like about it. First off, the music is pretty good as it captures that feeling of being in outer space. I liked how Terrapin and Aqua each had a little Bonnie moment with Stitch. Or to be more technical, Experiment 626 because this was the beginning of the film. In fact, I don't think any character has referred to him as Stitch in the game, or KH2 for that matter. But I'm calling him Stitch just for the sake of simplicity. However, this world falls flat on everything else. I was bored out of my fucking mind exploring the United Galactic Federation ship. Not even turning off the gravity in both the ship hub and launch deck was enough. The one thing that irritated me the most was how the security system can kill you from time to time. There was never a world in Kingdom Hearts where the environment kills you. I don't know who the fuck came up with that, but it was a horrible idea. The boss fights are another disappointing factor. For Terra, there's Experiment 221, or Sparky, as he's called in the show. He was a pain in the ass to attack, especially when he takes control of those blasters. Metamorphosis, I'm not kidding, that's the name of that jellyfish on verse. It's one of my least favorite bosses with Ven. Even Aqua's fight against Gantu sucked. It was way too easy and it felt very forced in unlike the other Disney bosses we've had in the past. I'm sorry to all you Lilo and Stitch fans, but I can't stand this world. Number 9. Olympus Coliseum. Next we have the overutilized Hercules world, that is Olympus Coliseum. Sadly, I had to put this world lower as opposed to the other lists I made. But that's not to say that Olympus Coliseum is a terrible world this time. We still get the iconic field slash battle theme since the first game and the story focuses on a young Hercules to his role of becoming a hero, which makes sense. I loved each of the interactions young Hercules had with the trio. Admiring Terra as his hero, the friendship he formed with Ven alongside Zack from Final Fantasy VII, or Aqua reminding him that strength isn't the only thing required to becoming a true hero. In KH1, this role was criticized for being lackluster in terms of exploring. Thankfully, the underworld fixed that in the sequel. In this game, however... Olympus was limited to just the Colosseum and a town near Thebes. Sorry, a very small town near Thebes because it's just one area blocked off from the rest of the city. I was very disappointed with that. The training minigame with Hercules isn't too special when it's available for each playable character, and those time-restricted enemy fights as Terra and Aqua sucked. The boss fights were relatively decent, though. For Terra, you fight Zack twice, where his second phase is easily one of the worst bosses in this game, because of how overpowered and unfair his attack pattern is. Ven fights a horde of Jelly shades, so it doesn't count. Aqua not only fights Zack, but Hades and the Ice Colossus as well. Definitely my favorite boss in this world. It's a damn shame we might not see Zack again in the KH series because of the end credits. Fucking Sephiroth. I still love Olympus Coliseum, don't get me wrong. It just felt inferior compared to how it was portrayed in the last few games. Number 8. The Mirage Arena. It's funny, I almost forgot about this world because it has no plot relevance whatsoever. Then again, it's a world that we have access to, so it counts. The Mirage Arena serves as a world for multiplayer purposes, where players can team up and compete in simulated tournaments to improve their rankings, or play the command board minigames if you really want to waste your time. Like I said, this world isn't integral to the story unless you're Terra and need to reach level 5 to get that secret report, which is mandatory to unlock the final episode. The more I think about it, This world feels like a spiritual successor to the Torment fights in Olympus from Kingdom Hearts 1. Not only is it a great place for level grinding, but it does provide a good challenge. And a few secret bosses can be found in this world like the Keyblade armors of Ericus and Xehanort, with the latter being referred to as No Heart. And you can even fight Monstro. You guys know how much I hated Monstro, so it felt refreshing to beat the shit out of him with my Keyblade. Even though I don't really care about this world, I do appreciate Square's third attempt at providing a multiplayer feature within the franchise. The only other attempt was in three, five, eight days, which worked for the most part. But before that, there was Chain of Memories. Yes, Chain of Memories had... Multiplayer. Why am I figuring this out now? Oh yeah, because I hated Chain of Memories. Number 7, Dwarf Woodlands. How ironic is it that the world based off Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was ranked number 7 on my list? Thanks to Snow White appearing in the first game, it was only a matter of time before we got to explore her homeworld. However, I do have mixed opinions towards this world. First off, I liked the music a lot, especially the battle theme, and it was cool to explore well-known areas from Disney's first animated film, such as the evil queen's castle, the deep woods where Snow White was scared shitless, and the cave where the dwarves dig up diamonds. The story is where I have the most issues with. Tara takes the role as the huntsman to seek Snow White's heart and give it to the queen. We all knew Tara wouldn't do something as diabolical as that, but it was so obvious it was boring. The seven dwarfs act like seven dicks to Ben. Before and even after he brought Snow White to them, they treated Ven poorly. I almost don't feel bad when Ven inadvertently returns the poison apple to the queen. In a way, they kind of deserved it. As for Aqua, she tries to find a cure for Snow White's sleeping death. Along the way, she informs the prince that she's being kept safe from the seven dicks. How convenient. The boss fights did save this world for me a little bit. Terrifying fighting the spirit of the Magic Mirror was extremely unique and is one of my favorite Disney bosses in this game. Magtrian is a solid boss as long as you get caught in those damn dark puddles. For some reason, Aqua fights the magic mirror as well. Really Square? You couldn't give us a different boss for Aqua instead of recycling Terras? It didn't bother me when I mentioned Zack and Olympus, but now I realize how lazy Square can be at times. Not saying this is a terrible world, just disappointing in some parts. Number 6, Disney Town. Keep in mind that this world is actually the town surrounding Disney Castle, yet they treat us as if it was its own separate world or something. Sorry Square, you're not fooling anyone with that shit. Truth be told, I wasn't expecting to like this world so much until recently. Each area within the town was fun to explore, especially the Gizmo Gallery and Pete's Rec Room, where you navigate through a giant pinball machine. The same music from Disney Castle is back, but amplified, and we get a new original battle track. More importantly, there are enemies you can find in this world, which is one of the main reasons why Disney Castle disappointed me back in KH2. Story-wise, it's one of those quote-unquote, skippable worlds. Yet it has a certain charm to it. Terra, Ven, and Aqua pretty much demonstrate their kindness by helping out the civilians with their dilemmas, then those said civilians vote for one of them to win the Million Dreams Awards, and Pete, being the selfish goofball that he is, tries to win the prize by portraying as a hero-slash-edgy racer. The story does provide three altered endings to see if each member of the Wayfinder Trio win the award. Honestly, the best part was seeing Maleficent release Pete from the dimension he was banished to, something that was eluded back in KH2. The minigames in this world were actually fun, believe it or not, Rumble Racing is essentially a bootleg version of Mario Kart, but it was still cool to see the entire world as a racetrack, including the castle. Ice Cream Beat has you shoot ice cream while matching the beat of a certain song, definitely better than what Atlantica gave us. And Fruit Ball is just like volleyball except you're serving and hitting large pieces of fruit. Maybe one day if Square decides to make Disney Castle playable again, they include the town as well. One can only dream though. Number 5, Castle of Dreams. Speaking of dreams, starting off the top 5 is Castle of Dreams. Same thing with Snow White, I was expecting a world based off Cinderella at some point in the series, although the fairy godmother appearing in Traverse Town added more hints. Surprisingly, I found myself enjoying this world a lot, right down from its very catchy music, exploring the royal palace and inside Cinderella's castle, and the story as well. Tara escorting Cinderella to the ball while getting rid of the unverse. You know, is it really a ball when the only guests you have are Cinderella, Lady Tremaine, and her daughters, I forgot to mention that Burke By Sleep is infamous for having cutscenes with no background characters in certain worlds. A prime example is in Olympus where you hear the sounds of cheering, yet there's no fucking audience. Despite that, this was Terra's best performance in a Disney world, at least in my opinion. Ven helps Jack build a dress for Cinderella to wear at the ball. Don't ask me how Ven shrunk upon entering this world, they never specify. Later, Aqua helps Jack free Cinderella so she can try on the glass slipper. Can we address the fact that Lady Tremaine and her daughter straight up died after summoning that giant unverse? That shit was mind-blowing. Also, I like the words of wisdom the fairy godmother gives to Terra and Aqua during their respective visits. The boss fights were great in their own ways, Simony Master was unique for controlling instruments and using them as weapons, Lucifer was my favorite boss in this world because of how much trouble he caused in the film. I enjoyed the cursed coach boss as well, I mean, it did us all a favor by killing off one of the most despicable Disney villains. Castle of Dreams turned out to be a great world overall. Number 4, Enchanted Dominion. Out of all the quote-unquote, princess worlds, Enchanted Dominion is the best of the three. Just like with Snow White and Cinderella, all of us expected a world based off sleeping beauty. Mind you, that Maleficent is one of the most prominent villains in the series, so of course her homeworld will be featured sooner or later. The whole gothic atmosphere that this world has felt so captivating to me. From the forest clearing to exploring Maleficent's castle, and King Stefan's castle where he and the rest of the kingdom are noticeably absent, despite being under Flora's sleeping spell. I swear, this is the last time I make fun of Burp. by Sleeps' hardware limitations. The music really captures that gothic feeling with its mellow tone. In terms of story context, we not only recap the second half of Sleeping Beauty, but there are a few changes. Sometime before the trio visit the world, Maleficent met Seynor, who told her about the Keyblade, hearts filled with pure light, and the existence of other worlds. Maleficent mind-controls Terra into extracting Aurora's heart, which is the first of many red flags in Terra's journey, then teams up with the three good fairies in retrieving Aurora's heart, while Aqua helps Prince Philip to escape Maleficent's castle. Now that I think about it, Philip is the only character from this world that doesn't serve a purpose in any of the other games. I guess Square wanted to stay true to how bland his character was in the film. I enjoyed the boss fights that this world had to offer. The Wheelmaster was a solid introductory boss for Terra. Then fighting Maleficent in her base form with the three good fairies helping you out, especially that team combo where you can put her to sleep, and Aqua fighting Maleficent Dragon with Philip by your side, especially that team combo move they pull off. Although, you have to be careful because the green flames instantly kill you in this game. If I can nitpick on a few things, it would have to be the maze in Maleficent's castle, and her goons that distract you a lot. Other than that, I love this world for its atmosphere, and how it built up Maleficent's plan for the first Kingdom Hearts game. Number 3, Neverland. What do you know, once again, Neverland is ranked very high, but more realistically this time. As I mentioned before in the first episode, Neverland was one of the most hated worlds in Kingdom Hearts, though I personally loved it. However, what we got in by Sleep was like nothing before. Finally, we got the chance to explore the actual Neverland instead of just being limited to Captain Hook's ship. Being a huge fan of Peter Pan, it was great to explore famous locations from the film, like the Indian Camp, Mermaid Lagoon, and even Skull Rock. The music changed completely since the first game, even though I enjoyed the previous soundtrack. Burp by Sleep's rendition is without a doubt superior. It's so cheerful and epic that it sounds like it's ripped straight out of the movie. I also enjoyed each of the stories. Terra helps Captain Hook with protecting his treasure as he claimed it contains the world's source of light. Of course, we all know that's bullshit because this story is just another example of how fucking gullible Terra is. Then story is him retrieving Mickey's star shark from Hook and help Peter Pan rescue Tinkerbell as well. Afterwards... Aqua joins Peter Pan and the Lost Boys on an expedition only to get sidetracked by Vanitas. Despite Terra having such a generic story, I still enjoyed how each of the members interacted with Peter Pan. It was great to see the Lost Boys finally make an appearance as well, albeit they only chose two, those being Cubby and Slyly. Seriously Square, where are the rest of the Lost Boys? The boss fights were also great. Sadly, Terra's fight against Peter Pan was cut short, but it makes sense for what kind of story they were telling. Captain Hook received a huge difficulty boost, yet he became one of my favorite bosses you fight as Ven, And I definitely wasn't expecting to fight Vanitas in a Disney World. Though the atmosphere doesn't change how difficult he is, it's still satisfying to see Aqua held her own against Vanitas again. Neverland improved a lot since the first game, and it deserves to tell as my favorite Disney World in this game. If Neverland ever returns in a future game, my only hope is that Sora gets to visit the actual island and not Captain Hook's ship. I mean, if the Wayfinder Trio and Roxas were given this privilege, Then the same should apply for Sora, right? Right? Number 2, Radiant Garden. The runner-up for my favorite world in this game is Radiant Garden. If you guys listened to my last two rankings, you would know that Radiant Garden is actually Hollow Bastion, just in its pure state. I loved Hollow Bastion in both Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, so of course Radiant Garden is going to be ranked this high. It was amazing to experience Radiant Garden before it changed to its corrupted state in the first game. It was such a beautiful world right down from its music and new areas added, such as the Castle Town, Fountain Court, and Outer Gardens. The castle returns as well, but we can't enter it like we did in Cage. 2 sadly. In terms of story, this is where the journeys of each of the Wayfinder trio started to collide. Terra felt betrayed by Aqua's authority as a Keyblade Master, which caused friction between all three of them. He then decides to align with Zanor without realizing he's joining the Dark Side. No need to compare this with Star Wars, the imagery speaks for itself. Ven tries to help Terra, only to get shafted numerous times. Aqua's scenario felt the most memorable because of her interaction with a young Kairi. It was so wholesome to see each member of the Wayfinder Trio interact with the three main characters in their youth. Terra meeting a young Riku on Destiny Islands, and Ven developing a literal heart-to-heart connection with young Sora. But those two parts happen much later in the game. I also love how we got introduced to the human forms of mostly the Organization XIII members, like Lee and Aiza, who are the human forms of Axel and Syx respectively. Both and wish to share a brawl moment with Ben. Excellent foreshadowing for the friendship between Roxas and Axel. Just to keep things convenient, all three wielders fight the same boss in the beginning of their visits. That being the Trinity armor, which is pretty much the unverse equivalent to the guard armor from KH1. Afterwards, Terra fights Bragg in a watered-down version of Zigbar's fight from KH2. Still an enjoyable fight though. And Aqua has her first showdown with Vanitas. And if you think Radiant Garden could be more relevant, just wait. In the final episode... Aqua returns to Raiden Garden to fight Terra Xenon, or Terranord as fans like to call him. This was the first time that the true final boss wasn't fought in the last location of a respected game, and I loved it. This of course led to Aqua trapping herself to a Realm of Darkness in order to save Terranord, or for him to be found by Ansem the Wise and become his newest apprentice. Damn, the foreshadowing is too much in this game. Then again, it is a prequel, so it should be that surprising. My love towards Raiden Garden continues to stay strong, but there's still one world that's placed slightly higher. Number 1, The Keyblade Graveyard. My favorite world in Burp by Sleep is the Keyblade Graveyard. Everything, and I repeat, EVERYTHING was building up around this world. After briefly getting exposed to this world in KH2 Final Mix, Curse of the Lingering Will Fight, players finally got the chance to explore this world, and already it was A-plus material for me. At first this world was simply called the Badlands, which Terra and Ven visited earlier in their respective stories. It wasn't until the game's climax where the world was fully expanded. A wasteland where the first Keyblade War took place, and the only remains are the Keyblades embedded to the ground, from the thousands and thousands of fallen warriors. Remember when we all thought the Keyblade was a -a one-of-a-kind weapon? It was a very simple time, and if you played every game within the series, you know I'm not fucking kidding. The lore and backstory makes this world even more enjoyable. The music has the perfect balance between epicness and creepiness, really solidifying that you've gotten this far and there's no turning back, as well as having those twisters that force you to fight Giant Unverse. In fact, the music doesn't even change when you engage in enemy fights, which is one of the main reasons why it's ranked this high. Of course, since this is the last world in each campaign, you can definitely expect to see a lot of intense moments. The Wayfinder Trio put aside their petty shit and try to stop Xehanort from forging the almighty Keyblade, or X-Blade as it's spelled, with the X meaning key, the ancient of all letters according to Xehanort. Wow, this is getting more complicated. But I'll admit it, it was awesome to see the 2007 CGI trailer be utilized in the game's climax. Unfortunately, Terra gets possessed by Xeranoth, thus becoming Terranort, leaving only his lingering will behind. Ven clashes with Venetus, causing the Keyblade to be forged, and Venetus taking control of his body. Thankfully, Aqua manages to save Ven with help from Mickey. However, Ven is left comatose, prompting Aqua to hide him in Castle Oblivion. The final bosses in each of the stories were very intense in their own ways, Terra's fight against Xehanort started off as a pushover until you faced Terranort. Oh my god. If you guys thought Riku Ansem from KH1 was tough, Terra Xehanort is a whole different level. Not only does he use the same abilities as Terra, but he also heals himself from time to time. I died to Terra Xehanort so many times in the past, yet I kept going because if I didn't, this boss would torment me for the rest of my life. At least players were given the privilege to play as Terra's Lingering well, considering how much of a nightmare he was to fight in KH2 Final Mix. Part one of Ven vs Vanitas was a fun boss, especially seeing Venetus surf on those flying keyblades. Part two is more enjoyable because you're fighting within Ven's heart. The only complaint I have is the dealing section at the very end. If you don't perfectly counter each attack Venetus unleashes, you're fucked. Aqua fights Bragg, who is much more difficult this time, even more difficult than the actual final boss, which was Venus Venetus. Yes, all three final bosses do have their flaws, but they provided a great sense of difficulty, which is what I love about these last world locations within Kingdom Hearts. As if that wasn't enough, after beating the game, you can return to this world to fight the Vanitas Sentiment. Sadly, I've only managed to beat him with Ven. Didn't even come close with Aqua or Terra. The Keyblade Graveyard is chock full of intensity and story driven moments, so I had to put it as number one. Another Kingdom Hearts list bites the dust. I feel like majority of these worlds suffer from the hardware limitations of the PSP which is understandable. Despite being a handheld title, Birth by Sleep actually has the same quality as a console game. Of course, this statement is no longer relevant because of the HD collections. Still, if you're curious to know what happens before Sora becomes a Keyblade wielder, then Birth by Sleep is the perfect game for you. It was the darkest game in the series before Kingdom Hearts 3. Again, I'll get to it eventually. This has been an episode of Geeks Crossing. If you haven't already, subscribe and join our Discord server. Thanks for listening, and have a great day!